go ahead and take a seat. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, uh, we are carrying on a tradition, a service, which has been called Monday Thursday. Monday Thursday. And the title Monday comes from the Latin for mandate. This is Mandate Thursday. Mandate Thursday. And that title, Mandate Thursday, Monday Thursday, recognizes the two mandates that are given by Jesus to the disciples at the Last Supper. And those two mandates are the foundation for our evening tonight. Now, Monday Thursday, it fits into what is called Holy Week, which culminates with Easter Sunday. That's the day Jesus rose from the dead. And at some point along the way in, in centuries past, uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the days that led up to it were given these different titles. We got Palm Sunday, which that's the one, if you've been in church or grown up in church at all, that's the one where like in, in like Sunday school, all the little kids get little palm leaves or at least it's like green construction paper that they cut to be a palm leaf and they just like, oh, I guess this is what worshiping Jesus is. And it is, it's part of it, but it's not all of it, but it's part of it, right? It's Palm Sunday and, and then you got Monday, Thursday, and then we have Good Friday tomorrow night. And then there's Black Saturday, we often overlook that. And then there's Easter Sunday, the big one, right? The day Jesus rose from the dead. Those other days, they have their own services, they have their own observances, but here tonight we maintain the tradition of this YA service. The Thursday before Easter is a Monday Thursday where we remember and reflect on the twin mandates of Jesus given that night before he was arrested and crucified and then eventually raised to life again. So we'll be in the book of John. If you have a Bible with you, you can pull that out or on your phone or if you're at home. Um, it'll also be on the screens for those in the room on these side screens. That's different and weird, but it's Easter, so things change. So we're in the book of John. John chapter 13, we'll start at verse 1. It goes like this. It was just before pass the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's just that's a beautiful line, right? The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, this is a really big so, <laughs> like how this, these two connect is. So, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. That night, Jesus did something unthinkable. So unthinkable. The leader, the teacher, the Messiah took a towel and wrapped it around himself. He knelt before the basin of water and he called his disciples to let him wash their feet. In first century Palestine, there's like dirty, dusty roads. You know, they got sandals. They don't really have Nikes or anything like that. So it's just sandals, open-toed. If you got a shoe, maybe you don't have shoes. So you're walking around and like no one's picking up 
after the animals as they walk by. This is gross. You stinky, dirty feet, right? And it was necessary. It was customary, which is almost more important than necessary in this culture. It was customary to have one's feet washed before the meal, especially a big meal like the Passover meal. Like, think of the meal that, like, you all look, maybe it's Thanksgiving. Like, that's a big one for a lot of households. And it's like, everybody knows it's the big meal. You got to, like, dress up. You got to look nice. Some places, it's Easter. Some homes, some families, it's Easter. Other, it's Christmas dinner. And, like, that's the meal where if anything is customary, you're going to do it, right? That's the meal where there's those customary, those things are the most prominent. And so it's the Passover meal. And washing one's feet before the meal was necessary, and it was customary, and it was a job that was done by the servant. Like culturally, if there was a slave in the home, it was the slave's job. And then if there's not a slave in the home, then it was the task of the least among the group. Whether it be the youngest or the lowest on the totem pole socially, whatever it might be, the least among the group, they would take that role. Because it'd be dishonorable for anyone else to do it. For them to lower themselves in any way. It was just right. The least. Who's lowest? It's their job. So here they are. Twelve dudes and Jesus. In this room. Who's going to take up the task? Like who's going to do it? Of course these guys. Like not long before they were arguing over who's greatest. And, And then. Of course, like, you're just earlier going like, nah, I think I'm better than you, John. I think, I think I'm going to have a more prominent role in the kingdom than you do. No, come on. My name's Peter. That means rock. He gave me that name. Of course it's going to be me. You know, you got Matthew and he's like, nah, I'm smarter than all of you. So clearly it's me. Like, they're arguing about these things. If that's their mindset, then surely they're not going to upset the customary way of doing things and be like, I'll take care of this. I'll take care of this. I'm on board. You know, I bet it came to their minds. I bet they thought about it. Who's going to do it? Maybe I should. No. No. I, I mean, I guess we've all got dirty feet, so like... Everybody's cool with it. I guess we'll just kind of ignore this. We'll just ignore that this needs to be done as if it's not a thing. I'm not doing it. I know that. And they're probably not doing it. So I guess it's just not going to happen. I think we've all been there. We've all been in that spot. Even in like the most mundane things in life where you're walking through a parking lot and you like see that thing of trash blowing by and you're like, somebody should deal with that. It'd be good if somebody to get that. Oh, it's kind of going the other direction than me. Oh, there's somebody else down there. Maybe they'll get it. Right? Like we know what they're in. Where you see a need, you see what should be done. You know something should be done, but you're like, eh, eh. is it really that big a deal? I'm not willing to go that low. I'm not willing to be that inconvenienced, to be that humble, to be that whatever. It's not what I'm going to do. But Jesus did. Jesus was willing. He did it. Jesus washed their feet. Like of all people in the room, him. 
We see it play out in the few verses that follow when Jesus comes to Peter. And Peter, always the fiery one, he's like, no, 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 no. This is not happening, Jesus. You're not washing my feet. That is just not right. It's not right. It's not going to happen. You're not doing it. You're not washing my feet. And Jesus corrects him. And he lets him know, and I'm sure, like, such a kind, gentle way, but firm at the same time, the impossible perfectness that is Jesus. He corrects him. And he lets him know that this is how it needs to be. That if Peter doesn't receive from Jesus this service, this sacrifice, that Peter would have no part with him. If Peter didn't let Jesus serve him in that moment, the unthinkable thing that Peter would have no part with him. So Peter, of course, is like, oh, okay, all right, I'm all in. Let's do it. Like He's like, the whole thing. And Jesus is like, whoa, whoa, chill, man. Okay, I'm doing a thing here. I'm showing you something. Peter's reaction of like, no, no, you're not doing it, is just, just underscores how mind-melting this was. That the leader, the greatest among them, and literally, like, the greatest person ever, the greatest person ever. It's not just the greatest in that room. It's the greatest ever. God himself would stoop so low and serve those lower than himself. And this still was not the lowest that Jesus would go. The crucifixion was yet to come. We pick up in verse 12. John 13, verse 12. It goes like this. When he, Jesus, had finished washing their feet... He put on his clothes and returned to his place. And he asked them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. That's heavy. That's really heavy. That's earth shaking. That's heart confronting. If that doesn't your worldview, then you're not really thinking about it. Like again, he says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. No servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. This is such a powerful and radical thing that Jesus gives a mandate for his followers to be humble before one another, to serve one another, and being the good teacher that he is, Jesus is what he teaches. He is what he teaches. God's kingdom just flips everything on its head. Everything on its head. And all, and humanity, just all of, we, we just couldn't comprehend it. We can't comprehend it. Not without him. And so Jesus became the epitome of God's kingdom. God himself took on flesh and set an example for us. Standing in the midst 
of this backwards world and showing us with his life what power and prestige are supposed to look like. And supposed to look like that. Like humility, sacrifice, service. It was so radical, so radical, so subversive to the prevailing norms. He he sacrificially gave his own life for screw-ups like you and me and Peter and everybody else that was in that room and everybody that's in this room. It was a part of his plan, a part of his exhibition of loving service and sacrifice for the benefit of others. And in case his disciples like just hadn't recognized like over their time with him, if they hadn't seen how Jesus lived and the implications of it, how they should live, he gives them a personal anecdote by which they could always reflect and be instructed by. He washes their feet and he says, you are not greater than me and I have done this for you. So you now go and do likewise for others. Like, he's like, if I'm willing to be, to be humble in service to you, you have even more reason to do the same for others. Jesus came to walk alongside us, alongside humanity, in the midst of the pain and the confusion and the trials, to lift us up through it. To lift humanity up and refine us. Refine us so that we may be all that we were meant to be. And a key ingredient which is his perfection just perfectly defines what this is. The key ingredient is humility. And those who follow him, everyone in this room who says, I believe in Jesus, you should be refined into humility as well. That night, Jesus And the disciples came together for the Passover feast. And after he had humbled himself before them and washed their feet, he told them, what I have done for you, what you've seen me do here, you go and do likewise. He's given them, he's given us, all of us, this mandate for our good, for the good of others. That we may embody his kingdom as he himself embodied. Like there was no insecurity in Jesus, none. No insecurity in Jesus. No wavering identity tied to his social status or others' views of him. Does that sound good to anyone else? And before you write it off because you're like, well, he's Jesus. Of course he's not insecure. Of course he knows who he is. Before you write that off, recognize that it is unto his image that we are being remade. Jesus is the one who defines what we each should long to be and are in process of becoming. To live in love like Jesus, how does that become our reality? How does living and loving like Jesus become our reality? Well, simple answer, go and do what he says. Go and do what he does. Because they're one in the same. Serve others. Embrace humility. For these two things are the cornerstones of God's kingdom. Guys, like, and gals, you know, all of us. That's what I meant by guys. 
Do you want to know Jesus? Like, do you want to know him? Do you want to see the world and life as he does? Do you want to know what security is? Like true, deep heart security as he did. Do you want to have an impact on this world that lasts beyond your lifetime? Do you want to live a life that has really much meaning at all? Then you got to know him. Do you want to see his kingdom manifest in your life and in this world? Then be the servant. Take the humble position. Live in love like Jesus. It's what this world needs. It's what your life desperately needs. My life is God's people to take up the mantle that Jesus has given us for us to actually step into the mandate of serving one another. Because where God's kingdom and this world intersect is in the hearts of each one of us. The heavenly kingdom that Jesus is ushering in he does it through us. It advances in this world with each act of humility, with not just associating with the least, the last, and the lost, but being willing to be lower than, than them in the eyes of anyone. God's kingdom advances when pride and self-promotion are cast aside, when insecurity and the opinions of others go silent and our identity forms by the words of our creator and our savior. His kingdom advances in this world when we live as he lived and loved as he loved and serve as he served. If we truly desire to have heaven come down, if you truly long for that, not just in your life, but anywhere, the role you can play, the thing you can do, if you want to see his kingdom to experience the sweetness of, his, of heaven here on earth as much as possible, it begins by listening to what he says and following his example. Do what he did. Because Jesus is the king of heaven. That means the kingdom is defined by who he is. The things that matter, the life that is valuable, the definitions of good and bad, they're all wrapped up in who Jesus is. All of it. So I want to have Sarah come up here. And Sarah and I, we get the privilege, the honor to... Um, pray and lead and talk and think about what, what it is that we need to do here. And God has been so faithful and I'm so thankful for the ways that God has brought about wonderful things in each of our lives, in many of your lives. And as we think about what we want, what God has really laid on our hearts for this place, for every one of you, for ourselves, Tonight, it kind of all fits together. Like as we talked about it, we, what we really long for, for your sake, for our sake, is that this mandate of Jesus would stir up your worldview. Mm -hmm. It would change how you look at yourself in everything. That it would shake up your orthodoxy, which is what you believe, what you think, and your orthopraxy, which is what you do. Mm -hmm. That it would stir both of those things up. Those two things are shaped by one another. And when they collide with grace and truth, when they collide with Jesus, that is the friction point where the Holy Spirit performs his most life-altering transformations. And so Sarah's going to lead us into a time here with the Holy Spirit 
where we hope and pray that that friction point and subsequent transformation comes about. Amen. Take it away. Amen. Yes. So as Brian was sharing, we want to be a people that not just goes and does because for what? I was in here the other day, actually yesterday, with some staff members, and we got to pray over this space. It was really cool. I got to be in a group um, specifically with our director of outreach, and she started praying for YA. And in the middle of her prayer, she kind of just shared this image from scripture out of John that actually comes after this in John 13. And it's the picture of uh, the disciple John kind of resting against the chest of Jesus. So that might sound a little odd, but you know, especially for those of you who are a physical touch, um, you're like, oh man, a hug, something that's warm, that's close. But this is how close Christ was with his disciples. And she was just saying how this picture of John resting on the chest of Jesus was such a beautiful picture of what we're invited into as followers of Christ, that he could hear his heartbeat, that he had that comfort level to be near him. And this was after Christ washed the disciples' feet. It was this invitation into this intimate relationship before, before he were, was to go and take the cross. And even reflecting on today, this concept of that, I mean, wouldn't the cross been enough? But he got low and took the form of a servant. And typically on Thursday nights, since it, Monday, Thursday is always on a Thursday, we've had the privilege of offering a, a place for you to wash each other's feet. But as Brian and I were talking and praying and considering what it actually means to wash our feet or the feet of the people that we love and serve, it really does start with a posturing of our heart. He talked about this humility that the kingdom of God comes to earth, that heaven touches earth when we serve as Jesus serves, but it starts before that. And we see that in Christ himself. Um, earlier in John, in John 5, he says, very truly, I tell you, the son, referring himself, cannot do anything by himself. He can only do what he sees his father in heaven doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. So when we consider what it means to even be a servant, there's first this invitation to come close to Christ. Uh, we're gonna give you guys some time to reflect before worship, but before you even ask Lord, how would you have me serve? I would just invite you to ask Jesus, Lord, refresh my mind and my heart again on what it means to consider that you stooped for me. That Christ postured his heart knowing that before he took the cross, he came to serve us. And that doesn't end. Just like our call to be like Jesus and continually serve those around us does not end when we accept him. It's an ongoing process. And even thinking about the fact that when we get to come before people, we, get to, we honestly get to posture and declare, I'm with him and we're for you. That's the word that we get to share with others when we stoop low to the least and the lost, those who others wouldn't consider coming before, to the friend that you're gonna step out and offer forgiveness first. And he goes on to say, Jesus, after this suffer, he goes, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. We learn this type of love from being near to Christ, by laying on Christ's chest, so to speak, as John did, by being near to him. And we're reminded that choosing to be a servant of all is a continued, ongoing, transformative process that brings heaven to earth. So as you guys leave, in the same place that you guys grab communion, um, we put together these. It's a wipe. At first we're like, oh cool, people can go home and wash each other's feet, you can do that. 
You can physically do that. You can take someone here tonight, sit them down on the stairs, wash their feet. But more than that, we want you to consider posturing your heart as a servant of all. The scripture that comes with this says this out of Philippians 2, 5 and 7. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So we're gonna give you guys a few minutes and the two things we want you to contemplate is one, again, if you've known Christ, if you're walking with him, asking him to refresh, just the concept, the awesome reality of what it means that he came to serve and to love you. If you don't yet know Jesus, maybe this is a time to ask, Lord, show yourself to me. What does it mean for you to be the Lord of my life who came and made yourself nothing so I may have a way back to God? first part. The second part is to ask God, Lord, what does it look like for me to be a servant? We want to not just be hearers of the word, but doers. Ask God. He loves to be specific. Have him put something on your mind and heart and then go out the store and do it. It might be taking this and like I said, washing someone's feet or washing their hands and just, and just as an offering to them saying, I'm going to serve you. You can hand this to someone as an extension of forgiveness by going first a commitment to your roommates, your parents, saying I'm gonna serve you no matter what, even if it's not what my first response or nature would be. Or this is just a reminder in your wallet, by your bed, and your dashboard. This is the life that we're called to as followers of Christ. And just like Christ cannot do this by himself, we cannot do it alone. We do it with Christ, through him, in him. So we love you guys. We're gonna give you a few minutes to reflect on that. And don't forget to grab one on the way out. Take a seat. In Matthew chapter 26, the story of the Last Supper continues. It says this, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat for this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So before they went out into that garden, the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, where Jesus would spend all night praying and wrestling with the reality of what he was about to take on the suffering, the pain, the full brunt of judgment for history's savagery. Before leaving, Jesus, in full composure and sanity, established for the church a practice that would buoy us, that would float us, sustain us through the long wait for his triumphal return. Jesus took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. And then he took a cup of wine and he shared it, saying, drink, for this is my blood poured out for you. And after he had done this, he told the disciples to do this in remembrance of him. This is the second great mandate, maybe the primary mandate. The sacrament of communion. To eat and drink and remember Jesus' sacrifice and suffering for our sake. Last week, if you were here, Brian Howard led us through a time of communion, and again, we do it here tonight. 
And there's two things I want to point out. One, this is done collectively. Done amongst all of us. Together we do it. It is a unity thing. It unites us. It unites us around our corporate hope in what is to come. That just as Sunday came for Jesus and he rose from the dead, the figurative Sunday will come for us too. That one day the promise is given to us through Jesus, the promises of resurrection and wholeness and deliverance from sin and sickness and no more tears, no more injustice, no more frailty and weakness for doing what is wrong or not doing what is right or loving or kind. Those promises that we will enjoy them in completeness. We will. A day is coming when we will all enjoy them in fullness. But now in this life, on this side of eternity, we get the first fruits of those promises. We get a taste of it in this life through the work of the Holy Spirit and the manifold graces of God which shape us and transform us and redeem us. We get a taste of it. We get a taste of it on this side of eternity, but we're only getting a taste. We don't yet know it in completeness. It makes me think of, uh, you know, if you go to like 31 Flavors or if you're bougie Tifa and you get that little like sample spoon, you're like, man, I love this sample spoon. It's delicious. I love the sample. It's great. But it's not the full thing. <laughs> it's just a taste. What we're, what we're really in it for is, is more than just the little tiny sample spoon. We're grateful for the sample spoon, but we look and we, we even enjoy the sample spoon knowing what is going to come. It's weird, maybe, but that's where my mind goes. Like right now in this life, we get the sample spoon. But one day, we'll get the whole thing. We'll get the whole thing. And we'll enjoy God and all that Jesus accomplished for us in completeness, in fullness. And that is our hope. That is what unites us around communion. The hope that we have in Jesus. That Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection did something that we could not do on our own. It secures for us a victory, a rescue that we hardly deserve. We don't hardly deserve it. Communion unites us in hope. It unites us in practice and gathering together. It unites us in sharing with one another and caring for each other's needs. It unites us in humility that we all need a savior and we're all equally dependent upon God. Communion unites us. The second thing that I want to point out is that communion is a remembrance. It is a mandate to remember, to reflect on the reality of sin within each one of us, that we are helpless to reconcile our imperfections, that we are slaves to corruption and death. And so Jesus came and did what we could not do for ourselves. He was broken for our iniquities. His blood was poured out to reconcile us to God. 
So we take communion tonight. And we do it because Jesus instructed us to do it. We do it because it unites us. We do it reverently and reflectively because we need the reminder. Our hope needs refreshing. Our hearts need encouraging and our lives, our lives still need refining. So now as we take communion, if you have that little cup, if you you need to get one there on the tables in the back, you can go grab one. As we take this, I'm going to take some time and pray. They might seem lengthy, I know, but I'm a pastor. But as I pray, as we prepare for each element, I, I ask that this would be your prayer. That as I pray this, as I speak this, you would take it on yourself. So get in whatever position you need to. I don't know what you need to do, but as you come to reflect upon what Jesus has done for you, kneel, close your eyes, bow your head, look to heaven, whatever it is, but just pray this along with me and enter into this sacrament reverently and faithfully. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I bow down before you in humility. And I ask you to examine my heart today. Show me anything that isn't pleasing to you. Reveal any secret pride or unconfessed sin, any rebellion or unforgiveness that may be hindering my relationship with you. I know that I'm your beloved child having received you into my heart and life and having accepted your death as penalty for my sinfulness, the price you paid covered me for all time. I am yours. Because you told me I am. And my desire is to live for you. As I take the bread representing your life that was broken for me, I remember and celebrate your faithfulness to me and to all who will receive you. I can't begin to fathom the agonizing suffering of your crucifixion. Yet you took that pain for me. You died for me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your extravagant love and unmerited favor. Thank you for your, that your death gave me life abundant life now and eternal life forever. So as you instructed your disciples, I too receive this bread in remembrance of you. So now collectively together, let's eat and remember what Jesus' body, that Jesus' body was broken for each of our sakes. Lord, as I take this cup, representing your blood poured out from a splintered cross, I realize that you were the supreme sacrifice for all my sins, past, present, future. 
because of your blood shed for me and your body broken for me, I can be free from the power and penalty of sin. Lord, thank you for your victory over death. You took the death that I deserved. You took the punishment, my punishment. Your pain was my gain indeed. While my relationship is secure in you, I know sin can break our fellowship at times. I'm still human. And I often forget who I am and whose I am. Lord, I invite you, I I plead with you, convict me, correct me. I know you don't do it to shame me. You love me. Like a perfect parent, you love me. You never disown me or leave me. You love me no matter what. Sin hurts both my heart, and I know it hurts yours too. So before I take communion today, I'm asking that you truly search my heart and reveal anything that I need to ask your forgiveness for, that I can ask your forgiveness for, and I know I'll receive it. I remember and celebrate the precious gift of life you gave me through the blood that you spilled. Now let's drink, recognizing Jesus' blood was poured out for our sake, for the forgiveness of each of our sins. Amen. Amen.